0: Okay. No. Morning, this is Radio Jackie broadcasting to southwest London on 227 metres medium wave. This is
1: Alice's Restaurant, 90.4 megahertz, and we're here to bring you the very best in rock music. You're into Lou the Duke here on Radio City.
0: If you want to write... Anyway, welcome to MAR on 266 metres medium wave, the sound of the northwest.
1: It's a Thameside radio on 90.2 megahertz VHF. <laughs>
2: Welcome to episode 16 of the Pirates of the Airwaves podcast, where we chat to some of the people involved in the land-based pirate radio world of the 1970s and 80s. My name's Mark Wakeley, and I'm one of the people behind the land-based pirate radio Facebook group. For this episode, I talk to Laurie Hallett, the poacher-turned-gamekeeper. He went from pirate radio operator to Ofcom official, via a whole load of radio-related projects, and played a major role in helping Radio Caroline gain their 648 AM licence. He now spends much of his time helping train the next generation of radio broadcasters. So let's see what he has to say for himself. Welcome to uh, another episode of the Pirates of the Airways podcast. Um, This week we have another one, I, I say this a lot, pirate radio legends, but this guy is someone who, uh, well, he, he drew me into the whole scene. So uh, for me, he's still quite a legend. And uh, that's Laurie Hallett. Hello, Laurie.
0: Hi, Mark. Nice to see you after so long. Uh,
2: yeah, we're actually face-to-face as well, which is quite nice at, uh, at Lawrence's Place of Work, which always is a nice place to be. Um, I'm going to ask you the first question I ask everybody on these podcasts, and I'm sure if you listen to them, you know what it is. When did you first become aware of pirate radio as opposed to just listening to the radio?
0: I must have been about eight or nine years old. My aunt was a teacher in uh, East London. And in those days, you had uh, radio programs for school kids on the radio broadcast live. And my aunt had this radio and she uh, used to use it to play to her kids in the school and it got nicked. And so she uh, called the police, and amazingly, back in those days, the police managed to recover this radio, but by which time she'd bought a new radio. So when I was about seven and a half, eight years old, she gave me this Bush seven transistor radio. And uh, I didn't like music with vocals in it back when I was a little kid. So I used to tune around the wave bands, listening for uh, stations that played instrumental music. And I came across these stations like Veronica and Radio North Sea International, I didn't know what they were. didn't know what that happened until one night I heard the firebombing of the Mebo 2, the Radio North International ship. And I asked my dad about it. And my dad told me it was a pirate radio station and he explained what they were. And he also told me that in his school, because he was also a teacher, uh, there were people who ran a station called East London Radio. Uh, one of the kids at his school had told him about working on this pirate station. And that was it. I was hooked. Uh,
2: I, I can understand that. Um, it's... It's it's weird it, it, that whole thing about pirate radio is, is something that um, it, it's a little bit dangerous, a little bit illicit, and I think people quite like it as well, especially when you find out where it's coming from and who's doing it. Um, okay, so so you now you're listening to pirate radio station, you're listening to ELR uh, two hundred and one, if I remember rightly. Um, then when's your first actual involvement? How did you become involved? Where did you take that step from a listener? To being involved?
0: Well, although I was, uh, I'd was, i never considered myself an engineer, I was always interested in electronics. And I had a mate called Steve. And Steve was really into his electronics. And actually, he made a good career out of it over the years. But uh, he uh, was really interested in the idea of building a transmitter. And he wanted to do uh, a transistor. And I can't remember. Something, I have a feeling it was a VMP1, whatever a VMP1 was. Anyway, it was some sort of FET uh, transistor which would run... Uh, at sufficiently high frequency to do AM. Shows I don't know what I'm talking about. Anyway, so we made this this uh, um, radio transmitter, which probably went about 200 yards. It probably wasn't tuned into an aerial properly and blah de blah, blah blah But we were also tuning around the radio at that time and we heard various of the kind of nighttime pirate stations and gradually made contact with people like... Uh, Christopher England from Radio Amy and in fact it's all his fault really because uh, along with uh, with Martin and other of my mates um, we managed to cycle on our push bikes which shows how, how young we were, we went over to North London by bike to acquire a crystal for 1395 kilohertz and uh, we set up with, uh, with various people, yourself included, we set up Radio Amy East because Chris was running Radio Amy, which you know, a lot of people have forgotten about. But it was an interesting station because it did more than play music and it was kind of one of the first pirate stations to try and think about, well, what could we do rather than try and be Dave Double Decks and a kind of watered-down version of Radio 1. Uh, you know, interesting as it was. And um, so that's, that's it. And that's when I think you and Simon rang on my doorbell one day and said, oh, we're interested in setting up a pirate radio station. something." It's all a bit mussy, that, but well, something along those lines. <laughs> well, I can tell you exactly
2: what came of this. I, I, I've told this story before, uh, and I'll very briefly go through it again. I bought an old um, music centre from someone which had a radio in it, and naively I thought it had a better radio than the radio. Of course, it, they don't. Uh, and I was tuning around on the AM, and I heard NLR, North London Radio, and I heard Radio Amy. And I spoke to Simon, who lived down the road to me, and said, what the, do you know anything about this? He said, ah, I know someone who does know about this. And um, again, people know this. Uh, Laurie lived further down the road <laughs> in the same street. And we, we both turn up on his doorstep and say, uh, what, what's all this about? And he went, ah, well, I know a bloke who knows a bloke. Anyway, long story short, we all get involved in Radio M.E. East via Chris England. I do remember a torturous... I think it must have been two or three bus journey to go over there to his place once to pick up or to have a conversation with him.
0: Uh, I just remember pedalling miles by bike. (laughs) I don't remember bus journeys. It was was up in
2: Enfield or something (laughs) like that, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. and then, and then I think we did our first broadcast. Did we do our first broadcast actually as Radio Buccaneer from Martin's
1: loft?
0: Uh, yeah, because Martin was building. So, so Martin was the guy who really was an engineer and still is. And uh, you know, this was in the days where transistorized transmitters were kind of not. Really, a thing in pirate radio, so it was all valves, eight oh sevens, and uh, um, and uh, others, that, the numbers of which I can't remember. And uh, uh, so he was, he did this, and he had he had the advantage of a long garden and a tall house. Uh, and a pole at the end of the garden so he could put a long wire aerial up. And so that was kind of playing around on Sunday afternoons. Um, but we very quickly realised that this was probably a silly idea and started to uh, put up antennas in night and woods and places like that in, in and around East London and do broadcasts with car batteries, uh, cassette recorders, you know, the, the usual kind of way in which things were done and, and gradually moving from uh, from valve transmitters to early transistorised transmitters built in old Pi Cambridge boxes and things like that.
2: Well, the the first transmitter he built for me was was an old transistor one, although really the subsequent ones were all valve ones after that. But uh, I just think it was about the power that you could get out of it for the price as well at the time. Um, So I know we went through a number of names. We went through Buccaneer, um, Radio Lucy for a little while, I think we did. Oh, yeah. Um, And obviously Amy East. And then eventually, well, I'll let you tell the story. We eventually scrapped all that and thought, right, let's start our own thing separate from the Amy East project.
0: And then we set up Phoenix Radio. And there's been lots of stations called Phoenix Radio, but I think ours was one of the, the first ones to, to do that. And that went out on uh, Sunday mornings on 1395 and and then I think 1404 kilohertz, uh, often from sites in and in Woods. Uh, and uh, ran for about you know four or five hours on a on a good day, and I do remember that you know there was a lot of pirate radio around because on one day I uh, went for a wander off once we'd set the transmitters up, and I was kind of looking around and I saw another antenna in the trees, and it was only about like three hundred meters from where our transmitter was, and I, I can't remember whose station that was, but there was there was another radio station in the same bit of forest, so I think it might have been an East London radio transmitter. I can't I. I can't remember yeah uh i know that uh um the two andies as they were called came and df'd us and and found us at about that time there's a lot of we met a lot of people who kind of just tracked down the signal and came came to talk to us so that was kind of good that was a way of kind of building the relationships which have stayed with us for for years after
2: absolutely it's probably how the, the podcast and the facebook group if if you're a, if you're a member of the facebook group the uh land-based pirate radio the 70s and 80s facebook group that's how that sort of all came about by me talking to friends and friends of friends, and it's just uh, become what it is today, which is which is quite a nice, friendly group of people, I think. Um, so the first proper station, Phoenix Radio, which I was also involved in and did programmes for, under the uh, presentation name of Steve Justin, the classic two first names DJ name... <laughs> uh what what were you calling yourself then
0: uh i started off with uh with funnily enough yeah two names brian martin but then there was another brian martin so i called myself brian marshall uh and uh i I, that name stuck with me for a long while and actually and i I first started using my own name on the radio when i started doing programs for xfm but that was years later so brian marshall was used for a long while
2: a long while (laughs) um okay so phoenix i think goes on for about 18 months i think we did that for on a regular basis and then the group split into two well i said split into two i split away and then they <laughs> carried on with something else so i go off to do radio comsat, which carried on a medium wave weirdly from most of the same transmission sites that phoenix used um and and still relying very heavily on on the phoenix radio guys for technical support and so on and so forth um what happens then to,
0: to the well, rest it was, of you? Of course, it was the old thing, wasn't it? It was the old musical differences because we had lots of people with different interests. And uh, that was at the time when we met Dean. Dean was another character. And Dean was really interested in uh, FM transmissions and on uh, you know high-quality FM transistorised and we got to meet him he didn't live very far away you know there were a lot of people around doing this sort of thing back then and uh we moved phoenix radio onto fm uh and the other people involved in uh, phoenix along with others split off to form Alice's restaurant because they were more interested in kind of the the more traditional uh, rock programming whereas, whereas ours was ours was slightly indie and yours was more punky yeah. i think that's the that's the that was the division it all seems a bit bit weird now because people's tastes are so much more eclectic now than they used to be but that was that was the split it's
1: a venue in victoria duratti column on wednesday nights <laughs> And that just about wraps it up for tonight's gig guide on Phoenix Radio. If you've got anything you'd like included in next week's gig guide, then get it in to me, Brian Marshall, on a postcard to Phoenix Radio at 1 St Barnabas Road, Woodford Green, Essex. That's Phoenix Radio, 1 St Barnabas Road, Woodford Green, Essex. The phone lines have been sizzling today, and one of the most requested bands we've had is Orange Juice.
0: But the great thing was that moved us on to FM, and that meant that we could uh, improve our coverage and we really did start. All of them, I think, started to build listenerships to to a greater or lesser extent. And that those two stations ran, I think, for you know four or five years, pretty much all the time. And in the end, uh, the thing that killed it was that the DTI really decided that they would do what they really—if you know—if you want to get rid of a pirate radio station, whack it at least twice a week for several weeks in a row, and people go. That's enough for a game of soldiers and uh, and they go and do something else. Uh, and that's really what happened to to both, uh, to Phoenix and to Alice's.
2: What sort of response did you get for Phoenix Radio? Were you getting, uh, I assume you had a phone line? And yeah, address, we had or a right?
0: phone line and we had an address and and uh, we had uh, the, the uh, St Barnabas Road address, which a lot of us used, um, which was uh, a friend of ours from school, and her mum was very tolerant and we got all, we got posts and we'd get, you know, sometimes we'd get nothing and sometimes we'd get 10, 20, 30 letters a week. It was, it was great. And uh, the phone lines, if we opened a phone line, uh, and normally as some of the programming was live, some of it was pre-recorded, but we'd open a phone line and it would ring, you know, 10 20 times in an hour if we were lucky it did depend on the site we were using and the coverage we were achieving and some of the uh fm sites like the the big blocks at clapton uh and and running kind of 200 watts into a into a uh, either a dipole or a, an n fed j pole um, J-pole, um th- they would get out a long way uh, certainly down you know i remember driving all the way to south end once and thinking this is pretty good um but that was a rarity. I mean, quite often the coverage was much more limited than that.
2: Yeah, and uh, am I right in thinking that you and Alice use the same transmitter and site, <laughs> yeah. and just switch the input?
0: Yeah, we, we. I mean, basically, we shared we shared a lot of sites, and sometimes if we were really well organised, we'd have two sites so that we actually had a backup site. But. Uh, you know, we, we were very lucky because I think for t- like two or three years it was virtually nothing from the DTI. They kind of ignored us. But one of the the, the problem, as I recall, was when Capital Radio decided to do its split frequency. So they split, uh, and they started to put a rock service on the yeah, FM. Was it
2: called CFM
0: or something? Some, oh, wow. I can't I can't remember. But it was you know it was a rock based service, and I remember one of the daily newspapers commented that it was a very good impersonation of Alice's Restaurant. Twenty
1: past twelve on Alice's. Restaurant 90.4 megahertz VHF. That was ACDC, an offering from last year from the album Flick of the Switch, and uh, that was called uh, Rising Power or something like that. A uh, very good afternoon to you. Midday's Marshall's program or something like that. One of these weekends, you know. I think uh, everyone at Alice's has discovered that there are wazzocks in the world this weekend. Anyway, today's program. It's packed with goodies, it is, but I must uh, declare the Marshall's law before we start. And Marshall's law is runs something like this. The time that you're given to arrive in the studio is never great enough to get there. In other words, I left for home at uh, half past 11 this morning. The journey usually takes 20 minutes maximum, even if you're not towing it down and there's a bit of traffic. You can get it in 20 minutes. Today, not a hope. Absolutely no chance.
0: And that clearly annoyed the people at uh, Euston Tower and they they basically got onto their mates at the DTI and uh, and Alice's in particular got whacked a lot of times. And, you know, we were moving into other things. We were starting to build transmitters for for professional broadcasters, for the BBC and others. We were starting to build a company that built broadcasting equipment. So, really, its time came to an end uh, because we were being pushed out by... By the by, the DTI, and also we had other things that we were making money out of, and therefore it started to be less important to us than perhaps it had done. And I went off, and I did, I went off to Italy, and I worked with Mark Desani on Radio Nova. I did a stint at uh, Radio Caroline. Uh, and uh, my, but most of my income was coming through working for British Forces Broadcasting where I was uh, mainly a, a producer and a technic- technician with occasional bits of presenting and documentary making. So uh, I was very lucky. I'd done what you did much more recently. I went off and did a, a, a broadcast journalism course, um, so I kind of trained myself up. And then there were quite a lot of opportunities to go and work both in the UK, uh, in Italy, and I also worked in Ireland But all of that experience was due to the fact that I'd done Pirate Radio. You know, Pirate Radio has given me a lifetime's career in broadcasting, so don't knock it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, and, and you know, I do do these interviews with people and I talk to people all the time. uh, And it never ceases to amaze me how many people went from, you know, stringing up aerials in trees in forests through to being proper broadcasters.
0: Well, I I do know that one person, I won't say who it is, went for an interview at the BBC and they'd uh, filled in their uh, application and there was a point in the application that said, do you have a criminal record? And this person confessed to his uh, illicit broadcasting activities and when it came to the interview, uh, the the candidate was asked, now we come to a slightly tricky point of the interview where we need to ask you about your criminal record. Uh, can you tell us more about it and he said well yeah it was for uh, uh, illegal broadcasting and they went oh really that's great tell us all about it and and uh, offered the job so <laughs> so so it wasn't always it wasn't always uh, um a negative thing to have that uh, that uh, badge of honor which i never had incidentally i always managed to keep one step ahead of them but uh, <laughs> uh, yes
2: you and me you and me both i i managed to get get away with it as well um, although I, I know quite a few people who didn't uh, often, though, I think it was more bad luck than anything. Well,
0: else. many, many years later, when I worked for Ofcom, uh, the first day at Ofcom, I went in and I was going to get registered and get my badge. I became a, um, a radio executive at Ofcom, licensing community radio back in the early two thousands. And uh, I got in the lift. It was a crowded lift, nine o'clock on a Monday morning, and a voice from the back of the lift goes, "Hallet." what are you doing here? Uh, and it was one of the guys that had chased us around East London 10 years previously or more than 10 years previously. And I said, oh, lovely to meet you, whoever it was. And, uh, and he said, what are you doing here? I said, well, I, I work here. And he went, oh, good grief. What's the world coming to? <laughs>
2: Well, uh, to what the world's going to do is proper radio people taking over radio, probably, I think is probably the way we could describe that. Yeah, absolutely. So what, what was your last sort of pirate involvement? Because uh, obviously you were you're building some transmitters for legit stations. Was there still a, a, a level of pirate involvement as well? Um because Phoenix carried on after you.
0: It moved did on, when didn't I you? went to there's a there's a a video on uh, YouTube uh, from a channel Four program with uh, graham and and Jill and one or two others. And that was made whilst I was in Italy. Uh, but the thing I kept going for a long while was Radio Avalon, which m- myself and the late lamented Norman MacLeod set up at the Glastonbury Festival in about 1983. And was that a pirate? That was a pirate. Yeah. And it eventually became licensed as an RSL. And I remember ringing up the guy at the home office, who in the home office used to give these licences, and I said, Bob, you know, we'd like to get a licence for uh, Radio Avalon. And he went, what do you want a licence for? You've been, you've been doing that as a pirate for years. And I said, well, now there's an opportunity to get a licence. We'd like to do it legit. And he went, okay. And we had a license for a number of years. And then I stepped back uh, probably about 15 years or so ago now. I I stepped out of it just because of other commitments and what have you. But it um, it was a great, that was really good because we did kind of one of the first, I think, fully solar-powered radio stations, for example. And we did lots of live outside broadcasts, you know, for example, from the top of the tour or the back of the pyramid stage and things like that. And a lot of the kind of technology that we developed for the London-based pirate stations was also used in relation to to those broadcasts. And we did, we then moved on to the early RSLs of XFM and we did that at the Reading Festival and things like that. And it was all, you know, basically building experience and working with people who had by then become BBC outside broadcast engineers and things like that so uh, you know you just acquire experience over the years and you make contacts and then you can can pursue those things but i I suppose my last pirate radio was in the in the early nineties, which was very kind of uh, piecemeal um, and I've carried on broadcasting and uh, um i the last thing I did really was uh, was xfM. Um, And then I I moved abroad for a while um, and uh, came back, uh, was studying at university, did a degree late in life and uh, then went off to work for Ofcom in 2004.
2: Ofcom was my next thing. (laughs) How did you end up working for Ofcom? How does that come about? And is it knowing someone who knows someone or filling an application in the Daily Telegraph or something?
0: No, 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 nothing like that. Uh, I... I, I, I had thought about working for the Radio Authority, but the Radio Authority, there was no way they were going to employ me. I remember that when we applied for and won the local radio licence for Brighton in the early 90s, uh, somebody at the Radio Authority rang up the managing director and said... You've got this Laurie Hallett person involved. He's a bit of a radical, isn't he? And I thought I laughed and thought, well, you know, I don't think people really think I'm particularly radical. But they didn't really like me because they knew my history. But the difference was that Ofcom, they actually rang me up and said, uh, we need someone who knows about community radio because I'd been working for the Community Media Association and things like that at the time, and I'd been doing work on international community uh, broadcasting and frequency planning and things like that. We need someone. We suggest you apply for this job. So that's how I did. And the the thing about Ofcom in the early days, I mean, there's a lot you can criticise about Ofcom, but they recognised that there were certain areas where they didn't have the expertise. And it wasn't just me. They went and brought in people from outside who could kind of diversify their, their knowledge base. Um, and I learnt a lot from being at Ofcom, and there's a lot that I would criticise, but I also think that, uh, given the situation they were in, that that some of what they did was very good. And community radio, I think if, if the radio authority had been responsible for community radio, we'd probably have about 30 community radio stations today um, because their attitude would have been, well, why should we license these stations? Whereas Ofcom's attitude was, why, why shouldn't we license these radio stations? And that's why they've let you know over 300 stations run. Some of them have crashed and burned, but a lot have survived. Um, and we've got a very diverse uh, um, selection of stations: some good, some not so good, um, and. Uh, you know, that's kind of essential when your commercial sector has become, um, how can I put this, amorphous and bland would be a generous way of describing it, perhaps. But, you know, they, but you can't knock it because it's still successful. But I think the problem is that the big broadcasting groups are kind of, they think that broadcasting is on the way out. And so their their attitude is that they're managing decline. And that's not really the way to run successful businesses.
2: Still the most popular medium, exactly. radio. Yeah, yeah. More people listen to radio than anything else in the country yet it's in decline. I don't quite well that out. Well,
0: it's funny because I teach now at the university and, and I ask my students, I say, how many people do you think, what percentage of the population population listens to radio? And they'll go, ooh, 30%, 35%. And you say, well, what percentage of the population listens to podcasts? Ooh, at least 80%. And then you tell them, well, it's, you know, it's plus 90% and, and, it's minus 30, and it's less than 30% the other way around. They're astonished, but that's because their age demographic is moving away from broadcasting. But then again, you know, I remember being told in the early, Days of Ofcom in the early two thousands. Oh, you know, young people aren't listening to radio. Well, if that was completely true, uh, you people in their forties now would not be listening to radio, and the, and they are. It, it's just that the way we consume radio and the opportunities for listening to other forms of media have expanded so much has changed, and. I laughed the other day when uh, um, Tim Davey was saying, well, we're we going to move the BBC online. I mean, A, what an own goal when you're faced with a government that is not particularly disposed towards the BBC. But B, do the math, mates, Work out how much carrying capacity you need to put everything online and then go, ah, oh, dimwit to go and stand in the corner for a day because because it just doesn't work it might work in 10 years time or perhaps 20 years time but for the moment there just isn't the carrying capacity to if you turned off all the broadcasting tomorrow uh, and just put everything online the the internet would collapse under the weight of, of everything that was was being uh, received because it's not designed to do that uh, multicasting it's all point to point one to one unicast and that doesn't work uh, in a broadcasting environment unless you pay a fortune for it and invest very heavily in the uh, in the infrastructure and you know it might work well in cities but uh, in the wilds of nowhere you're never going to get broadcast reception type quality via the internet.
2: No, absolutely Sorry, rant over. (laughs) (laughs) That's no problem. Um, No, and and I agree with you. Uh, You know, more than I say, more than 90% of the uh, population listen to the radio. Uh, That's linear radio. That's not on-demand radio. Um, As well as that, you know, there is definitely a move over to digital listening, but it's still predominantly, you know, it's DAB and uh, computers, but there's still 30-odd percent of people listen on FM or AM um and and they've you know they've been wanting to switch the, the the broadcast bands off for some time and not really got away with it um i don't know what the latest is on radio four from Droitwich. is is that definitely gonna happen well what happened should I, I, mean, I say
0: we were certainly told in the late 80s that Droitwich would have to be turned off because you know it was life expired etc etc um But at the moment, I mean, there was then a huge, I think the voice of the listener and viewer did a huge campaign and it scared the bejesus out of the BBC who then decided not to turn off longwave. It will go. But all these things, you know, I remember being told back in the day that uh, AM would be turned off and that everything would be on FM. I then remember being told, well, everything will go on to DAB. Now, of course, the world has changed, and DAB is now, I think, very much a kind of stopgap. But it's quite a big stopgap. I think, you know, probably in 10, 20 years' time, we'll still have DAB. Um, but eventually, eventually everything, we, we, broadcasting, as we know, it, will eventually fade, but it's but it's a lot further off than than people think it is.
2: I always describe DAB as the CD of the broadcast world, <laughs> where it went from vinyl and tapes to um cds and then of course now everything's streamed and digital although i don't do that i still have cds and vinyl but anyway that's another story um but i always think of it as that as dab as you say is the stop gap it's the bit in between yeah
0: but it's a really important bit in between now because it is the, the single platform with the most listeners so one of the reasons why community radio stations want to get onto dab is that you know you've got to follow your audience i remember um i think it was sammy jacob at xfm saying to me you know life used to be simple you just got your fm license got on with it. Now you've got to have FM, you've got to have DAB, you've got to have online, you've got to have podcast, you've got to have listen again, yada yada yada. It's a much more complicated environment to run a successful radio station. Mind you, it's also if you were if you were to run a pirate radio station today, in many ways it would be much easier. My point is always that actually now there are opportunities to do it with a license. Why would you do it without? And I know some people think that they, they would rather still do it the old fashioned way, but personally I, I, I'm I'm much happier to do it with a licence than without these days.
2: I, I have this conversation with people, and, and uh, some people who feel that uh, anything on the internet's not real radio, that's not broadcasting as far as they're concerned, but the very phrase bro- of the word broadcasting means that you're broadcasting. <laughs> um, a lot of people who think that uh, anything with a licence isn't worth listening to, um, and anything that's not on AM is not worth listening to. I, there's a whole... You know, the anoraks are divided over this.
0: I mean, I'm pretty Catholic. I just, I listen to what I like listening to. Uh, And I I don't, flat. frankly, I don't care whether it comes down a piece of string in a tin can or whether it's DAB or whether it's on my phone or whether it's on the internet. I don't care so long as I like the programming that I'm listening to.
2: Uh, I'm very much the same as you. I I will listen to things that I enjoy. uh, And that may be a podcast. It may be six music. it, It may be, well, I don't know anything really. I do like radio that has something to say Uh, the sort of the the continuous jukebox type stations I can't quite understand why they do that because Surely you can just stream your playlist. Even, even
0: they can be good. I mean, think the one I listen to a lot is uh, Radio Paradise from, it used to be in Paradise, California, but it moved before Paradise burnt down uh, a few years ago. Uh, but what I like about them is they're incredibly eclectic. You never know what's coming next. And it's the same with Feep France into Paris, which is, you know, it's a very little conversation, very little spoken word, but you never know whether you're going to get... Uh, um, uh, a piece of uh, classical music, or a rock and roll track, or some heavy metal, or an indie track, or, or the latest release from uh, from some current band, or you know, it, it's so eclectic. And I love to be surprised. Uh, uh,
2: this absolutely is an example of why radio is so interesting. We are sitting here looking at each other, and we've both got a very different view of what we feel is good radio. On my way here today to to speak to Laurie, I, I'm I was listening to BBC local radio and then a podcast and, and i love that i love the local radio thing i love them talking about where i live uh which as some of you may or may not know is in shropshire uh, you know we've got a great bbc local station there i really worry about the future of, of local radio in that context um but anyway uh these future of radio conversations always seem to come in these podcasts at some point because we're all so passionate about it from from what we did in the past um so what what was your actual? role at Ofcom then? Did, were you involved in licensing or were you involved in regulation? Or?
0: Yeah, so, uh, so I, I guess I, I was first of all recruited to do the planning and preparation, and then the evaluation of licences for community radio stations.
2: Was that community radio stations the first time
0: around? That was the very first one. So not the access radio... The one ra- they reneged on so the No, 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 no. Sorry, no, no. So the access radio pilot scheme, which ran in the early 2000s by the radio authority before Ofcom was established, they ran about 20 experimental stations. And then Ofcom licensed from... Uh, early 2004 i think it was they started to license community radio stations so they re-licensed the access stations under community radio licensing and then they have invited more licenses That's stations like resonance and- yeah resonance and my station up in norwich future radio uh and and all of those stations across across the country including where we're sitting at the moment radio lab in the university of bedfordshire which is a community station for for luton and the surrounding area, Radiolab, um, Predates Radio Lab in America, for those of you that know the podcast program Radio Lab, and it stands for Radio Luton and Bedford. Um, yeah, and so so I did that. I was uh, quite involved in the planning of the rollout of DAB to make it the equivalent, of, as far as possible, of FM. And that's frankly impossible because the technologies are so different. You're comparing apples with oranges. But to try and make the coverage of DAB uh, reliable, um, I suppose in terms of pirate radio, the thing I'm I'm most happy that I did was I wrote the papers and I convinced the board at Ofcom to give Radio Carolina licence, um, because I I remember having a conversation with my boss who was a, a decent bloke, you know, and he there, there were a few people in Ofcom who had long memories and didn't want to give Radio Carolina licence, but most people I said, look, it's like a steam railway, you know, it's a it's a radio station that kind of is doing. Uh, in the same way that steam railways reflect ra- railways. 20 30 50 years ago radio caroline is is kind of that and and working on the premise of why wouldn't you give them a license well why wouldn't you give them a license you've got a frequency there that's doing nothing you've got people who are perfectly capable of running a radio station so give them a license so i wrote the documentation and got that through which eventually ended up giving radio caroline its license um and uh i i think that the other thing i was involved with a little bit was commercial radio licensing but i tended to try and Uh, fight shy of that because uh i just thought a lot of the applications were um unimpressive shall we say not surprising
2: um so i want to go back a little bit because uh, a bit that i know you're involved in and, and you've not mentioned it and i'm not too sure why um is your involvement in the launch of kiss as a legal radio station
0: yeah, KISS was an interesting one because uh, we uh, were, along with uh, with other people, we did the engineering of KISS as a pirate station. Um, and KISS was hammered by the authorities at various different points. So we had to have a production line of transmitters coming out of our ears uh, and we had to be ready to put these transmitters up uh, all over the place in London. Uh, And um, it was, you know, frankly, we were up all all hours at the weekends trying to keep that station on air. Um, And what I liked about KISS was that although they ran as a pirate station, they always intended to be a licensed organisation. And so when they decided to apply for the licence, we helped them with uh, the technical side of their proposals and they then invited us to build their first studios in Holloway Road and to negotiate with uh, NTL, as was, and BBC uh, Transmission to get them uh, on air in London. And uh, it was a great learning experience. We worked with um, uh, a guy called Steve Grocott, who uh, has pirate radio connections because he was on The Voice of Peace at one point. And uh, Steve did a lot of, uh, of radio station engineering. And uh, we built, we'd built studios at all sorts of smaller radio stations, but KISS was the one that we did, was the biggest one. And it was done under the licensing auspices of the, what they called, um, I think they called it incremental radio. Uh, and it meant that it used the old IBA code, but a kind of watered-down version of it. And there were daft things like they said, Well, we can't pass this state studio. We can't give you we can't give you permission to broadcast to this studio because the loudspeakers in the studio are too close to each other. And the DJ won't be able to hear the stereo image to make sure that's accurate. And I remember saying to the IBA engineer, Are you seriously telling me that the DJ is the arbiter of quality on a radio station? That is complete nonsense, uh, and, that, and 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 we just stuck to, stuck to our guns and didn't have to modify that. And the other one was that we had because it was Kiss, it had SL twelve hundred Technics turntables, uh, and they, if that, for those of you that know, have quite a lot of rumble on them, and they wouldn't pass them because there was too much rumble. Now rumble in in on FM is nonsense because it's filtered out by the characteristics of the fm transmissions to a certain extent uh, and i remember going over the road to a hi-fi store and buying a couple of those uh ice elastic pl- uh, platters and uh, lifting up the turntable stuffing them underneath in the hole putting the turntables and going measure that again and they measured it and it was fine uh, but they had this kind of old-fashioned iba attitude that everything had to be done a particular way and kiss was using dat machines when dat machines weren't weren't being used. KISS was uh, logging on video from the outset, which was quite new at the time. Uh, KISS was using SL-1200s. KISS was using non-broadcast mixtures for the, for the kind of DJ type of work. A lot of things which, you know, IBA engineers would come and scratch their heads at. Um, but uh, in the end, we got it through. And it was a good learning experience. I do remember that one of the things we did was we wanted to make it... Uh, we wanted to make it uh, robust, Uh, And in those days, everything was connected by analogue lines between the studio and the transmitter. So the transmitter was uh, at uh, Crystal Palace. And so we had two lines coming out of the front of the building at Kiss in Holloway Road. One went north to one exchange and one went south to the other exchange. So if any one of them got dug up, uh, it would be fine. It wouldn't go off air. Nope, they dug it up at the junction outside and broke through both lines. You know, just classic. You You couldn't make it up. Um, but it was a really good experience, and there's some embarrassing video of me in various programs about the early days of uh, of, of, of Kiss. But uh, yeah, really, and I mean they were just really nice people to work with. And I remember when we did the launch of Kiss, we had um, in Holloway Fields, I think it was. there was a great big launch party, um, and uh, basically it was far too successful. And the local council said, "You are never ever doing that again." But it was a, it was a great experience. Not really my type of music. Some of it I like, but most i wasn't particularly interested in but they were a really decent bunch of people
2: that's that, that's great that whole, whole thing about case i've seen those videos yes they're a tad embarrassing <laughs> i think it's more to do with haircuts than anything else to be honest
0: <laughs> yeah well at least in those days i needed haircuts
2: <laughs> exactly i'm in the same boat um okay so one other thing i wanted to ask you about off cop was were you the only pirate there uh
0: no i think it would be unfair of me to uh, out some of the others um, but there were a lot of people whose background was uh, less than pristine, white and uh, legit, shall we say? And that was good. I mean, you need that. You need that diversity of people. You know, in the the problem, I think with the IBA and and with the radio authority to some extent was that it was, to coin a phrase, it was very establishment. It was people who came from the right university and had done the right course and had a particular attitude to the way in which uh, radio should be run, both in terms of regulation and economics. Um, And there were people in Ofcom who said, you know what, actually, why are people spending 10 grand on soundproofing or 20 grand or 50 grand on soundproofing? It doesn't matter. And that's why all those regulations were, you know, I'm, in some ways, I think that, deregulation has gone too far. And, and as evidenced by the fact that commercial radio is basically, as you say, a jukebox. Um, but on the other hand, I think in the, in terms of technicalities, you know, if people think it's all right, it's all right. It doesn't matter how it measures. If people are happy with the quality of the sound, it's fine. And that was a big change between uh, the IBA gradually being relaxed by the radio authority and Ofcom just going, well, you know, if you're happy with it, we're happy with it. End of.
2: In the short period that I was at LBC, uh, their biggest gripe was the technical standards of the IBA at the time. And they had massive problems with uh, various production facilities, which were not up to standard and they weren't allowed to use. They had something built in the newsroom which they weren't allowed to use because it wasn't up to IBA standards.
0: And that goes right back to the very early days. I mean, Capital Radio had a big uh, automated cart player for automated programming. We just stacked up loads of carts and, and pushed play and off it went. And as far as I'm aware, it was never allowed to be used simply because uh, the, uh, the noise floor on the carts was too high. Uh, and, you know, who cares, quite frankly? I mean, if it sounds rubbish, then do something about it. But if it doesn't sound rubbish, what's the problem? I think most people don't notice <laughs> exactly, any of exactly. these things. Yeah, um, yeah. You
2: know, I I, I now broadcast from a small room in my house. I don't think anyone would know whether it was a yeah. studio like this or the small room Absolutely, in my house. But
0: to be fair, one of the things is that the quality of a lot of broadcasting equipment has massively improved. The dynamic range of mixers and recording devices is so much better um, and uh, and it's much, much cheaper. So it's much, much easier. The barriers to entry are so much lower than they were. And Pirate Radio um, demonstrated very, very early on that you didn't need truckloads of money to run successful radio stations.
2: Well, you and me both broadcast from studios, which are basically Heath Robinson operations with strange little homebrew mixers and uh, old BSR turntables and all kinds of things. And we produce radio programmes all the time, hours and hours and hours of radio programmes that way. And... I don't think any of our... And certainly no one ever listened to my station said, I'm not too sure about your audio.
0: No, no. I mean, it, you, it did end up that when you went on FM, you had to be a little bit more careful because you could hear the imperfections a bit more than you could on AM. But even there, you know, there was nothing that was seriously... I mean, we, we were quite careful, you know. We we made sure that our, record, our tape recorders, our cassette recorders were good quality and that we used good quality cassettes and what have you, uh, and that the playback was synced up. You know, the old trick of drilling a hole and using a screwdriver to get the azimuth right and stuff like that. But but i think that you know you can get obsessed with quality and i think that's the problem with regulation is that you know there is a there is a horrible old expression about uh, why do dogs lick parts of their anatomy that like 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 they do and the answer is because they can and uh, and uh, it's the same with regulators why do regulators regulate because they can and i think you you know there comes a point where regulation is just for its own sake and not for any material benefit and as I say, coming back to Ofcom, and I don't want to sound, you know, I really don't mean that Ofcom is a brilliant regulator, but Ofcom at least had the sense to recognise that there were some things that it just didn't need to be involved in. Of course, you need to regulate the transmitters to make sure that they're not causing interference and that they work efficiently, et cetera, et cetera, and don't cause problems with aeronautical, et etc. etc., cetera, et cetera, But I remember my dad saying when we were doing pirate radio and that someone would come on the radio and say, oh, but of course these pirates, they cause problems with blah, blah, blah. And my dad saying to me, I don't remember ever hearing a story of an aeroplane actually falling out of the sky. Now, of course, there were genuine problems. And if you happen to be broadcasting near Heathrow or what have you, there were definite examples where uh, Ofcom, when I was there, had to go out and take something off the air quickly because it was interfering with aircraft landing systems or whatever. But it was incredibly rare. Um, And, you know, I also know that uh, there were examples of major professional broadcast transmitters going haywire and causing problems. And of course, a problem on a 10 kilowatt transmitter going haywire is far more dangerous than a 50 watt transistor uh, transmitter. I remember being caught, but not caught, uh, by someone from the DTI and asking, saying, well, you know, what we've been really lucky. Why have you left us alone? And the comment was, well, you know what a filter is. You know, so so uh, uh, yeah. You know, there were people. There were even back then. There were people involved in uh, in anti pyra activity who were much more relaxed about it than some others, shall we say?
2: Okay. So, at w- w- what point did you leave Ofcom Then, when did you move away from Ofcom and what did you do next after that?
0: So, I um, had done. So, a piece of uh, personal information: my brother passed away in nineteen ninety-six. And that was when I decided that I could carry on running the broadcast engineering company that I was involved in there, which was, first of all, we, from Phoenix Radio, uh, Martin and I formed Phoenix Communications, and we uh, did design work for Edistone Radio, and we built radio stations a lot in the Republic of Ireland, uh, some on the other side of the world, some in Europe, and and, uh, some studios in the UK before the uh, existence of uh, community radio. We did a load of RSLs. We did the first, I think we did the first ever FM RSL, and we did loads of the very, very low-power the cells when, when they said, oh, we'll generously give you 50 milliwatts of power. And one of them that they gave us for, Radio Thamesmead, was on the same frequency as uh, Radio Moscow. Uh, not surprisingly, as soon as it started to get dusk, you were wiped out. And I remember... Uh, a DTI engineers actually pacing out 500 metres to measure the signal at 500 metres. It just, it was a nonsense. Um, but we ran Phoenix Communications and then we merged with a company called Wireless Workshop to form Radica. And Radica still runs today. And we we did, again, outside broadcasts and uh, RSLs and building radio stations and uh, transmitters. A lot of AM radio stations at football clubs, for example, were, uh, were done by... Um, by, by Radica uh, using designs that we'd made at, at Phoenix and, uh, and we did things weird things like reverse bearer transmitters for the BBC which were where you had a directional antenna on the top of a big mast and you were sending a, a, basically a talkback signal back to outside broadcast vehicles all sorts of weird things like that which were great fun But when my brother passed away, I decided, well, you know, I could be doing this for another 30 years. Do I really want to be doing this for another 30 years? No, not sure that I do. I know what, I'll finally do what I wanted to do when I was 21 and go to university. So I went and did a degree in uh european studies and scandinavian languages i had a scandinavian girlfriend at the time which explains that one Uh, and uh, then i did some work for the community media association then i i'd got the study bug so i went off and did a master's uh at the university of east anglia where i did uh uh, development studies and international relations uh then i went back and i did more work for uh, the community media association and various freelance consultancy work in europe uh, and then I decided, once I'd got to Ofcom in 2004, by about 2008, I was getting itchy feet, so I applied to do a PhD at the University of Westminster into community radio, um, because they basically said, we'll pay you to do it, so I said, thank you very much, and I worked part-time, I mean, that sort of thing doesn't unfortunately really exist these days, but I, so I did it part-time with them, uh, and I finally got my PhD about eight, nine years ago, Um, and then in 2010 uh, someone at this university uh, at the University of Bedfordshire offered me a job said you know you should be interviewed for this job and I was convinced that my mate was going to get the job because he was more qualified uh, and they rang me up at Ofcom the next day and said do you want this job and so I've been teaching radio at the University of Bedfordshire since 2012.
2: That's fantastic so uh, we've sort of brought you up to date you're still involved in radio stations um in where you live uh, and also obviously at the university as well
0: yeah so i don't have a lot to do with this radio station my colleague terry is the station coordinator and and the students basically run the radio station and terry steps in if they're going to Going to do something which might get us into trouble with Ofcom, um, which is very rare. You know, students are students are pretty pretty sensible, uh, and we're lucky because we've been doing radio at the University of Bedfordshire for twenty five years, so it has a good reputation. And because Radio Lab is a real radio station, they kind of treat it with respect in a way that I think if it was a campus radio station, they'd perhaps be a bit they'd be a bit less concerned about making mistakes. Um, But, uh, yeah, I am on the board of Future Radio, which is the community radio station in Norwich, which did RSLs from about 2003 and has been on a full-time licence since 2007. Uh, And That's a not-for-profit organisation which actually runs a school for kids who have been excluded from full-time education. And originally, the idea was that these kids would, as part of their education, would do work on the radio station. And some of them, I mean, some of the early... Uh, students that went through that school are now full-time employees at the radio station or at the broader charity. So that worked really, really well. And I'm also, uh, I run with colleagues the DAB multiplex for Norwich, which we ran as an experiment from 2015. Uh, This is a classic piece of Ofcom. We'll give you a six-month experimental license and then you can be licensed full-time. That six-month experimental license was was extended at least twice and finally ended... Uh, in September this year, September 2022. So a six-month license. And I remember saying to them, because this happened with the community radio stuff, they said, oh, we'll give you a, a, a year's license for the, for the um, access pilots, And I said, oh, that won't be long enough. No, 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 we'll do it in a year. Three years later, they've extended the licence twice. And I've said to them in 2015, you know, this is ridiculous. You're going to need to extend these. No, 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 no. All the legislation will go through next year and you'll have your full-time licence. Six years later, they were still waiting for the legislation. So we got our permanent licence, our permanent non-experimental licence in early September this year. Um, and uh, that's great. We carry Radio Caroline. We carry uh, um, the local community radio stations. We carry uh, Solar Radio and other ex-pirate. We carry uh, um, a weather station, which basically tells you what the weather's like in Norwich. We carry about, I think, at the moment, about fourteen or fifteen stations, um, and uh, it it's, it's it's kind of it kind of runs itself touch wood unless it goes wrong and uh, it, and it's very popular and uh, the, and the point is the reason we do it is partly because we're anoraks but it's also because it makes a certain amount it doesn't make a lot of money but it makes money which we then put into the funding of the, of future radio to help them right. with their program production so it's a not-for-profit organization uh that when it makes a surplus it donates that to the local community radio station it's a separate entity so if either one of them was to crash and burn the other one would still exist but its purpose is to put resources into uh, the community radio station. So we we do all their we cover all their engineering costs, for example.
2: I'm now going to come to my last few questions, yep. and these I, I try, again, I try and ask all the, the same questions to people. The first one is why radio.
0: I think yeah, that's a good question. I think partly because I was you know I I, I wasn't the most social of people when I was a kid. And I think that radio gives you that kind of it, it gives you the. I mean, there's a certain amount of ego to it. Let's face it, but it gives you the ability to interact people without interacting with people. If you see what I mean. And I think that for a, a 14 year old geek was kind of very attractive. But I also love the way that the technology is accessible and cheap and uh, and effective. You know, you can teach as a as a uh, student uh, at this university when you're learning radio. You're learning in the jargon, a lot of transferable skills, a lot of what you learn about radio in terms of organisation, planning uh, and uh, presentation and, uh, you know, getting, getting your points across... You might never, ever go to a radio station. You might never work in radio, even if you've done a degree in radio and audio, but you've got those skills which you can apply in other areas of media or in other broader areas um, because you know everybody needs to be able to get their ideas across. Everybody needs to be able to communicate. Everybody needs to kind of understand the the way the world works. And radio, because it's a social phenomenon as well as a technical phenomenon, it actually teaches you about the way the world works. And so it's a really good skill to have.
2: Out of all the people you've met, and work with. I'm going to talk in the pirate radio realm because you've done a lot of other stuff. Which of those people do you admire most, or feel that there's helped you most? Who's the most important person within that group? Well, I would say I- I'm accepted from this. By the yeah, way, yeah, yeah.
0: I would say. I mean, in terms of our direct team, uh, the people that I, the person that I think was most influential because he was so skilled was Martin. I mean, there's no doubt about it. His technical skills uh, really helped. Uh, and and when we ran the company together, I basically generated some income and did sales and admin, admin and what have you and helped with some of the design work, the easier bits. And Martin actually did the serious kind of component level engineering. Um, in terms of, I can say ex-pirates, I mean, uh, John Peel was an incredibly good influence on me. He was really helpful and uh, I've I thoroughly enjoyed working with him. Same goes for Tony Blackburn. He was a really decent bloke to work with um and i think that in the current crop of people hard to say but i think that the guy who currently runs radio caroline uh is you know he has made a real success of that station uh and made it something which you know 20 years ago i think everybody thought that was the end of of radio caroline and actually radio caroline is eclectic uh and it is it's a bit of social history in some ways, but it's also actually quite a popular radio station. I mean, the fact that they, you know, the amount of money they generate uh, is, is you know, enough to, for them to run it. And uh, it's interesting that while everyone else is abandoning AM, they're still using it. Although they, of course, they're on DAB uh, and they're online and what have you. So they're an interesting bunch. And uh, I think there's a, there's a good future for them not least because they've got someone involved who understands how to run, because he ran businesses of his own before, he understands kind of the imperative of making sure that things are are, uh, are, are sufficiently well run to be economically viable.
2: And what moment are you most proud of? What, you, what achievement in the whole, in, again, we're still going to talk about Pirate Radio here, are you most proud of?
0: That's a really good question. I mean, I loved my time in Italy, which was quite brief. And I loved the work that I did in the Republic of Ireland on a number of different radio stations. I think uh, I really enjoyed working at Bray Local Broadcasting because Bray Local Broadcasting was a pirate station, but it was also an embryonic community radio station with a lot of involvement of local communities. Um, but I think that the thing I'm most proud of being involved in is probably the campaigning at the Community Media Association uh, and the eventual arrival and my contributions to uh, to community radio, including developing the the funding scheme which they have, which is you know the funding scheme itself is great. There just isn't enough money in it, um, and so I think those are those are the sorts of things which I'm I'm. You know they give results and if people enjoy the radio stations and i've had any tiny part in getting those stations to exist uh that's that's what i'm happy with that is fantastic thank you
2: ever so much for being on the podcast i really appreciate your time and lending us your facilities uh for this particular recording uh laurie hallett thank you very much indeed
0: thank you mark
2: thanks for listening to episode 16 of the pirates of the Airways podcast And thanks to Laurie for chatting to us. I'd also like to thank piratearchive.co.uk for their help in providing the on-air clips. If you were one of these radio rebels defying the authorities with your high-tech brain and shrewd planning, or just spent your weekends standing around in a wet field looking out for men in suits who were coming to spoil your fun and you want to tell everybody how you helped change the face of radio in the UK, then why not email us at piratepod7080 at gmail.com or contact us via the Facebook group. It's the same method if you'd like to make a comment or suggestion about the podcast, so why not get in touch? We'll be back in two weeks with another Pirates of the Airways podcast, so until then, keep a lookout during those tape changes and don't get caught.
1: Radio Nova broadcasting on 1404 kHz of the medium wave band, 212 metres. Unfortunately, we've had to suspend your regular broadcasting. This is due to the post office requiring to test and inspect our equipment. We'll return you to normal broadcasting just as soon as we can. This is a 1386 audio production.